Okay, I'm going to preach a big God tonight. You, is that okay with you? Amen. You okay with that? No, no problems with uh, me preaching a, a sovereign God? You know, <laughs> thank you, Tom. You know, there's some places you can't preach a sovereign God anymore. The people won't hear it. They don't believe it and they won't hear it. But at the International Church of Milan, we're not overly concerned with what men think. We're only concerned with what God has to say and what He's revealed about Himself in His Word. One of the speakers this, this year at the Interlochen Conference, he's a well-known, internationally known Christian apologist. He's on the ministry team of Ravi Zacharias, which I know many of you are familiar with. His name is Stuart McAllister. Uh, the technical definition of a Christian apologist would be this. I looked it up uh, in, my, in my theological dictionary. Here it is. Someone who presents a systematic discourse in defense of the divine origin and authority of the Christian faith. Simply said, a Christian apologist seeks to defend the Christian faith. He gives a reply. He gives an answer to the skeptic regarding Christianity. I had the privilege to have a couple of extended conversations uh, with Stuart while we were there in Interlochen. I, I, I really enjoyed the man. He's a nice guy. He's a very, very smart man. Very well read. And I shared with him that uh, I've always loved Christian apologetics. But I've discovered one thing in my 25 years of lay and vocational ministry. Uh, and that is that Christian apologetics as they are normally or maybe I should say frequently done, while interesting, are not particularly convincing or compelling. Frequently, Christian apologetics slide down into the lowest common denominator of discourse, which is normally philosophical debate or argumentation. Uh, you listen to, to many well-intentioned Christian apologists today and you simply, simply hear a man quoting a bunch of other men. Now, there's nothing wrong with quoting men. I quote men in my preaching, but I no longer quote men in my apologetics. Or let me just say this very infrequently. Because I use my apologetics with unbelievers. And I just normally don't quote men anymore. I don't find it compelling. I don't find it convincing in the lives, in the lives of unbelievers. I shared with Stuart that no doubt apologetics certainly has a place in our conversation with the world. I just find that its usefulness is quite limited. Ultimately, the Christian worldview is not ultimately a philosophical argument. It's the revelation of God. It is not a philosophical argument as every other worldview on the planet is. Our worldview does not emanate from the heart and mind of man. It emanates from the heart and mind of God. Amen? Amen? I know the world hates it when we talk like that. Uh, the PC crowd uh, hates it when we claim exclusive revelation from the only true living God, when we proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way into salvation. I know the PC crowd hates that with a vengeance, but I'm convinced that we as Christians give up too much when we condescend to philosophical debate. 
We need to open up the Word of God and put before the unbeliever an awesome, fearsome, consuming fire Creator God. In my opinion, this is what the unbeliever would benefit the most from. I told Stuart I rarely use apologetics anymore, particularly with unbelievers. I mean, you guys know this, right? Everybody believes something. Right? Everybody believes something. Everybody has a worldview, no matter how ridiculous it is. No matter how cartoonish it may be. The skeptics believe in their skepticism. And the atheists believe in their atheism. Even the agnostic believes in his agnosticism. And of course, everybody's got a quote. Right? Everybody's got a quote. The Buddhists have a quote from the Buddha. The Muslim has a quote from Muhammad. The Hindu has a quote from the Bhagavad Gita. The atheist has a quote from Richard Dawkins. And of course, Tom Cruise has a quote from uh, Alien or something, a Thetan or something. Uh, beloved, my point is this. Why should we descend into the sinkhole of human reasoning? We just need to share God's Word. We just need to point to a breathtakingly awesome God. We just need to open up the Word and share it with people. Human philosophy and man-made religion, they are quagmires. Quagmires of unfounded speculation. But the Christian, we don't deal with speculative uh, philosophy in the words of men. We deal with the words of I am. Why should we deal in philosophy when we have the truth, capital T? When we know the Logos. When we know the Word. When He has put the Word into our heart and our mind by the power of the Scriptures and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why quote men when we can quote I am? That's how I feel about it. <laughs> you may feel differently. You may feel differently. Over 4,000 times the Bible claims to be the Word of God. You've heard, it said, you've heard me say it many times. The Bible is not God's explanation. It is His revelation. I Am does not explain Himself. He simply reveals Himself. Isaiah 46.9 God plainly, clearly, and unapologetically says, I am God there is no other. I am God and there is no one like Me. That's what we need to tell the unbeliever. That's what we need to share with the skeptic. God is there. He's alive. He's awesome. He's fearsome. His name is I Am. His name is Jesus Christ. No apologies. Unbeliever, that's the truth. Deal with it. I think many times... This is how we need to share. We need to put an awesome God in front of the unbeliever. God is our ultimate apologetic. The psalmist said it perfectly. I read it to you last week in Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. What a great verse. The Lord reigns. Let heaven and earth tremble before this awesome God. I think often, too often, our apologetics brings God down. You know, when we try to explain Him, 
I fear we simply bring Him down. And as I've shared with you so many times, I know we do this when we try to explain the Trinity. Have you ever noticed God never explained the Trinity? God just reveals uh, the truth of the Trinity. And I just want to challenge you to, to follow God in that regard. Don't try to explain the Trinity to a skeptic. One, you can't. But two, God doesn't explain the Trinity to us. He simply reveals it to us. John Piper is right. God is not mainly to be understood, but to be worshipped. That's what we need to tell the unbeliever. You need to worship your Maker. You need to worship your Creator. We don't need to make nice, pat, world-friendly, man-friendly, philosophical arguments with the unbeliever. Yes, we can love them and be gracious to them. And yes, sometimes we may want to get, get on that level in a friendly conversation, but ultimately we need to put an awesome God in front of that unbeliever and let him know he should tremble before the Lord. That's who I am is. <laughs> That's who Yahweh is. He is the unfathomable, transcendent, awesome, fearsome, consuming fire God. He's the God we teach our children about. We teach our children that He is the incomprehensible God. He is past finding out, as the Scripture says. Right? He is past finding out, but He has revealed Himself through the Word of God and through the living Word of God, the living Logos. Who's that? Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus has made God known. We need to tell the unbeliever, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is God. So God has become my apologetic. When I'm called to make an argument to defend Christianity, I simply point to God. That's all I do anymore. I just point to God. I don't try to, to uh, quote philosophers and apologists. I just... Point to God. God says, I am. And there is no God like me. God says, I reign. Let heaven and earth tremble. God says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into my hands. We need to share that with unbelievers. We don't need to show unbelievers how smart we are and how educated we are and how philosophically sophisticated we are. We need to point to I Am and challenge them to bow their knee before this awesome God. We need to point to Him. We need to show the arrogant, self-absorbed, falsely self-confident unbeliever they need to bow their knee. And I'm also convinced... Uh, for the believer uh, in, the, in the modern church, we would do well uh, to understand and take to heart the words of Isaiah 66.2, which I've shared with you many, many times. Isaiah 66.2, we should incarnate that. That should be our incarnate apologetic. Isaiah 66.2, God says, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being. God says, I'm the awesome Creator God. 
This is what the Lord says. But then He says this, To Him, uh, but to, to this one I will look, to Him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at My Word. Believer, what is the beginning of wisdom? What is the beginning of knowledge? To fear the Lord. Do you fear the Lord in the proper way? I'm not talking about... I'm talking a, a reverential reverence and awe of your awesome Father God. So I said all that to say this. I have to preach one more sermon on the sovereignty of God. Uh, I have to. The Lord says I have to. And so I, I, I just do what He says. He says I have to, so I'm going to. It just seemed wise uh, to do at least one more sermon on this all-important, largely ignored topic in the modern church. Largely ignored. Many Christians are basically emasculated in their attempt to walk by faith because they don't really know that their God is sovereign in every detail. As we've talked about the last three or four weeks we've been together, there is not one rogue molecule in the universe. God is sovereignly directing, controlling all things in accordance with His all-wise decrees. I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon, that famous 19th century English preacher said about coming to sovereignty. Listen to what he says. He said, I felt as if I had suddenly grown from a babe into a man. That's what it will feel like for you, Christian, when you come to realize that your Father is sovereign indeed. He's sovereign indeed. He's in control. He's in charge. And as we've been saying, as we looked at the sovereignty in the life, the sovereignty of God in the lives of Esther and Joseph and Shadrach and Stephen, if we learn God's sovereignty correctly, we will be free to live our Christianity the way we've always known we should live it. Without, uh, without reserve, without hedging, without recourse, 100% following Jesus Christ, white hot, in love with Him, following hot on the heels of our awesome God with glad, reckless joy, abandon. You guys know what Daniel 11.32 says. Listen to what God says. The people that know their God shall... Does anybody know? Shall be strong and shall do exploits. Beloved, you've been called to do exploits. You know, you've not been called to just have a nice career and buy some stuff and entertain yourself. You're God's people. <laughs> You've been called to do exploits. Exploits before men. Exploits that, that, that let men know you serve the transcendent, living, sovereign God. And your courageous faith is on display. God says the people who know me, they are strong. And they do exploit. So my challenge to, tonight for you, my invitation to you tonight is to learn your God correctly and then live your faith correctly. To be a strong people and to do exploits for the glory of Christ. As we talked about last week, to be Philippians 1.21 people. To live as Christ 
to die is gain. That's your life. That's who you are. People look at you, they should say, Philippians 1.21. He's a Philippians. She's a Philippians 1.21 guy or gal. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's just not pretty theology to Him. It's His life. As we talked about last week, <laughs> we will be dangerous people if we take Philippians 1.21 to heart. First thing I want to do, I felt like I had to, to go back and sum up. I just want to enlarge and embellish our definition of sovereignty. So, you know, this is not a normal sermon. I'm not just preaching a text that you can follow along with me. So you just need to, you just have to sit and listen to me. Um, and if you need some of these references, let me know. I'll be happy to email you my notes. Or you can go out on the podcast site and listen to it again. We've said that God's sovereignty is His absolute, uncontested, infinite power and authority. His name is El Shaddai. You know what that means, right? The Almighty God. Again, He has no peer. He has no colleague. Just a few verses in, in review. Daniel 4.35 God does according to His will in heaven and earth. No one can stay His hand. You remember that great text in Isaiah. Who can turn back the outstretched hand of the Lord? Who can? No one. No one. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. We talked about it last week. God says, I am God. There's no one like Me. My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all My good pleasure. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. He's not frustrated by Satan. He's not frustrated by men. He does all He pleases in heaven and earth. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He is the only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality, and I love this, and eternal dominion. <laughs> eternal dominion. You guys know 1 Chronicles 29, 11. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Listen to this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and You exalt Yourself as head over all. Beloved, that's our Creator and that's our Redeemer. I've said it to you several times in this series. Shame on us if we're living our Christianity Really, really small. Shame on us if it's an afterthought in our day. Shame on us if God doesn't inform all that we do. Shame on us. I love what Pink says about God's sovereignty. He says to A.W. Pink, he says, to speak of God's sovereignty is to speak of His Godhood. His Godhood. I love that. I love that. And I want to say to you, beloved, it's the challenge of faith that God has given to us in Hebrews 11.6. What does Hebrews 11.6 say? We must not only believe that He is, but what? Someone tell me. Pardon me? That He is a rewarder of those who believe in Him and trust Him. Beloved, that promise is worthless unless He's a sovereign God. Explicit in that text 
is our confession that He is a sovereign God. He is a sovereign promise keeper. He's an irresistible promise keeper. He's an omnipotent promise keeper. Genuine biblical faith makes that confession. We run to Him knowing His Word is good because He is the great El Shaddai. Not because He's some frustrated deity that Satan and men can stymie. He's the awesome and fearsome and consuming fire, sovereign Creator God. I love this about Him. I absolutely love this about the Lord. Beloved, this is a big deal with God. Why do you think God says it like that in Hebrews 11.6? He really expects you to believe that He's a promise keeper. He really expects you to believe He's sovereign. And He expects you to live like you believe it. That's what He expects. He expects you to live like you believe He's a rewarder. He says, I, it's not just that you believe that I am, but you live like you believe I'm a promise keeper. That's biblical faith. That's biblical faith. And it will inform the whole of our lives. In my view, this delineates false Christianity from genuine Christianity. The false Christianity says, I believe, but they never do anything about it. They don't live like they believe. It's false. It's spurious. It's, it's counterfeit. But true Christianity says, I believe, and it lives like it believes. Hebrews 11. That's what Hebrews 11 is about. That's what real biblical faith is all about about why do Christians, real Christians, believe and live it? They believe He's a promise keeper. We believe He is good for His Word. Beloved, do you see the import of this doctrine? In Hebrews 11.6, God effectively says, I'm God, I expect you to believe it, and I expect you to live like it. So that's my challenge to you tonight, beloved. That you go out in the world and you live like your God is a promise keeper. You don't shrink back. You're not timid. You're not afraid. You embrace all that God brings into your life for His glory, His honor. And as we've said so many times, ultimately we know for our own joy. So I'm just going to do a brief survey through the Bible just to, to, to buttress many of the things, some of the things we've said in the last three to four weeks about the sovereignty of God. First, of course, you know God's sovereignty uh, is on display in the creation. I bet many of you have never even thought about this. Obviously, we think of His genius and power with respect to creation. But God is sovereign uh, in this. He commands that which does not exist to exist. You ever thought about that? God... <clears throat> Commands that which does not exist to exist. He is sovereign not only over what exists, but what does not exist. I love that. There was a time when there was no earth, there was no water, land, plants, stars, animals, galaxies, uh, or men. But God effortlessly commanded that they should exist. And what does the Scripture say? And it was so. It was so. Awesome. Yes, power and genius, but also sovereignty. Secondly, God's sovereign power and authority is on display in the fact that He upholds the created order. 
All things, anything and everything is subject to the sovereign decree and will of God. Beloved, I've said this to you many times. Man, if you ever own that in your heart and your mind, you are free to be a radical Christian. And if you don't really own that for yourself, I don't know that you are free to be a radical Christian. But once you get to the place where you understand the sovereignty of your Father, you are, in my view, free to be a radical Christian. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the Word of His power. We talked about it a week or so ago. Matthew 10.29, Jesus says, Not even the sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of My Father. This is not only true about sparrows. This is true about men. God tells us in Acts 17.28, For in Him we live and move and have our being. Most men who walk the planet are oblivious to this truth. They do not know that God is consciously upholding them every nanosecond of their existence. Men seem to think they are little sovereigns and they have self-existence, that their being uh, is within themselves, that they somehow, somehow they, they have control of their own heart or their own brain waves. Somehow uh, they can make that heart beat one more time. Sometimes, somehow they can generate one more brain wave. Beloved, you don't have the power to do either one. Apart from the decree of God. God sustains His creatures every moment. God is self-existent. God is the great I Am. All existence, all being is derived from Him. You walk and you breathe and you eat and you sing and you dance and you love and you dream and you play because it pleases God. And He is holding you in His hand. Every breath is in His hand. Every beat of your heart is in His hand. Beloved, do you see, do you see how we should be worshiping this awesome God? And do you see how we should be giving ourselves away to this awesome God? You know, if we, if, as I said, if we come to own sovereignty, it will change the way we think and the way we live. God is unapologetic. In 1 Samuel 2.6, God says, I know that uh, your average congregation really doesn't like it when God says stuff like this. God says, I kill and I make alive. God is sovereign in this. If we're Bible believers, we understand that life is, our life is not our own. It is a gift from the life giver. You had nothing to do with your birth. Nothing. How many of you had anything to do with your birth? Any of you? Nobody. And you have nothing to do with your death. When your days are... When your ordained days are up, God will call you to Himself. And you will either stand before Him as a child or you will stand before Him as an enemy. This is the Word of God. It's, it's a life-changing thought, I think. Your life is not yours. It never was yours. It's never been yours. It's never going to be yours. It's a gift of God. And God, as we know from Scripture, will call us to give an account of our stewardship in this life. 
As we've been saying in this series, God governs the courses of the 50 plus billion galaxies in the cosmos and He and He directs the courses of the individual neutron within the cell. And of course, He controls everything in between. I'm just going to give you a couple of scriptural uh, evidences of the sovereignty of God and His created order. Okay, just a couple. I could, I could stand up here till I fell over quoting Scripture about this, but I'm just going to give you a few. The beast obeyed God in coming to Noah. Remember? The rains obeyed God in, Genesis, in the Genesis 7 flood. The frogs and the lice and the flies and the locusts obeyed God as He judged Egypt. The microbes of disease uh, obeyed God as he, again as He judged Egypt in the Exodus. The waters of the Red Sea obeyed God as He saved His people. The earth and sun obeyed God as they stood still that Joshua may gain the victory. The wind and the waves of the storm obeyed the simple, very simple command of its Creator. George, uh, Jesus Christ said, Peace be still. Blindness and deafness and leprosy and paralysis and every manner of infirmity obey the commands of Jesus Christ, even death obeys Him. Of course, we know that God sovereignly governs the good angels. We know that. And the, angels, the good angels, the unfallen angels, they, they submit to His authority and power and they obey Him and He governs them. But we also learn that God is sovereign over the fallen angels and over the fallen demons. Man, every time Jesus encountered a demon, they knew exactly who He was. He was the Son of God. They always knew exactly who He was. And they always submitted to His Word. Always. They always had to obey the Lord. We also see from Scripture, particularly from the study of Job, that God exercises total and complete sovereignty over Satan. Satan is but a dog on a leash. And you have to love the lesson we learn from Job and his sufferings. You know, Job never looked at secondary causes. He never looked at Satan. He never mentioned Satan. He looks right past Satan. Yes, Satan is, a, is the secondary uh, cause. But Job looks right past him. Remember what Job said, Job 1.21, The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He just lost his whole family and everything he owned. Now here's a man who's learned God correctly. Here's a man who has learned the sovereignty of God correctly. Job 2.10, remember? Job said, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then he says this, the Holy Spirit says this in Scripture, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, God says, Job was right to look past Satan and look at me. It's a testimony of Scripture. It's the testimony of Scripture. I love it. I love it. What Satan certainly meant for evil, what? Someone tell me. God certainly meant for good. This is the lesson we learned from the life of, of Joseph a couple of weeks ago. So, beloved, it really comes down to this. When it gets hard in your life, do you really believe Romans 8.28? Do you really believe it? That God is causing all things to work together for good? For those who love Him? Those called according to His purpose? Do you really believe Hebrews 11.6? Do you really believe He's a rewarder? Do you really believe it? That's what it comes down to. 
Do we believe our God is a sovereign promise keeper? Or are we just playing religion? I mean, I mean, really, that's what we come down to, beloved. That's what we come down to. Am I merely check, checking my religious box or am I believing and living? Genuine, biblical faith. I heard a man one time present just a horrible, terrible, awful case of evil perpetrated against a young Christian. And he presented this case to John Piper and the man asked John Piper, where was God? You've probably been asked this question yourself. Something like it. I get asked this question on occasion. Someone will present this, this horrible case of evil and then they'll say to me, where was God? John Piper's answer was perfect. Piper said, God is on His throne preparing recompense for the victim and the perpetrator. I love that answer. God is preparing reward for His child, his, the eternal reward for His child, and God is preparing eternal damnation for the worker of evil. Beloved, God is on His throne. Hey, the world's not in the shape it's in because God is not sovereign. Why is the world in the shape it's in? Someone tell me. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? Wait a minute. God put us in paradise and He said everything north, south, east, and west of the tree is yours. What happened then? Oh, we rebelled. Oh, the world fell. Oh, Satan took over dominion from us. Don't you dare blame God for the, the conditions of the world. It's your fault. It's my fault. It's Adam and Eve's fault. And all our forebears' fault. Don't you dare. Don't you dare blame God. Don't you dare, beloved. Don't you dare. So we've seen that God is sovereign in every aspect of creation from microbes to galaxies, from frogs to Satan. But here's the ultimate question for us as Christians, I think. What about mankind? Is God sovereign in the hearts and lives of men? Does God's will govern or, and rule or do, do, the, do the wills of men rule? Most of you or some of you may be aware there's a gross heresy making rounds in the modern church today. It's called open theism. Any of you ever heard the, word, the term open theism? Anybody know anything about open theism? Good. I'm glad you don't know about it. Uh, the basic assumption is this, is that the free will of men and demons can trump the sovereign will of God. Beloved, that is a lie from the father of lies. It greatly brings down the God of the Bible to assert such a thing. What do the Scriptures say? I have quite a few Scriptures here, but for the sake of time, let me just give you one of the most powerful ones. Uh, Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. The Lord turns it whatever way He wills. Is God sovereign in the hearts and lives of men? Scripture says yes. Do men like that? No. Do men chafe at that? Yes. Do even people who call themselves Christians hate that doctrine? Yes. That's why I always share Isaiah 66.2. God says, I'll look to the man who is humble and contrite of heart 
And what? He trembles at my word. He doesn't explain away my word. He trembles at my word. The Bible tells us that God can and does judicially harden the rebellious hearts of men. The Bible tells us that God can and does open the sinner's heart to respond to Him. God righteously hardens the hearts of men unto judgment. It's in the book of Exodus, Isaiah. Uh, it's in the Gospel of John. It's in Romans, among others. And God graciously opens the hearts of men unto salvation. Again, uh, that you can find that in Ezekiel, the Gospel of John, Acts, Romans, Ephesians, uh, in the book of Titus. These truths are replete in the Bible. With unapologetic sovereignty, God says... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So then He has mercy on whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires. Paul writes those words in Romans chapter 9 and he knows when you hear it, you're not going to like it. That these words are not going to fall easily upon the fallen uh, ears of man. And the Holy Spirit, it's, it's beautiful if you go study that chapter. The Holy Spirit knows this question is in your mind. And the Holy Spirit directs the Apostle Paul to rhetorically include this question that arises in our fallen minds. Romans 9, 19 and 20, Paul writes, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? I bet that was the question in some of your minds. But listen to what the Holy Spirit says. Here's your answer, beloved. Church! Here's the answer from the Word of God. The Holy Spirit says, on the contrary, <laughs> who do you think you are talking back to God? Who do you think you are talking back to God? Beloved, do you see why I started... The sermon with, The Lord reigns. Let all the earth tremble. You know, sometimes as Christians, we just need to lay on our face and worship. We can't explain Him. Paul doesn't even attempt to reconcile the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Paul doesn't even attempt it. You know what Paul says? His ways are past finding out. His judgments are unsearchable. Beloved, what does the believer do? You know, we know that the, the we know that the unbeliever hates this, this kind of high sovereignty. We understand that. But what does the believer do? Even when we struggle to understand it, which we cannot fully, it is beyond us. The believer simply receives the revelation of God by what? Faith. By faith. By faith. God's every bit as big as He says, and we will not edit Him in this church, nor will we bring Him down in this church to a, to a level where we can put Him in a nice little box and believe that we have Him understood completely. That's one of the things I love about Jehovah. He is infinitely mysterious. He is infinitely mysterious. I'm through. I want to say this to you, beloved. One of the reasons I wanted to preach this short series on God's sovereignty is I wanted to remind you He's God and who's not? 
you're not. He's God, and you're not. And I hope you're living every day with that in the forefront of your mind. He's God, you're not. The life you live, the next breath you take, the food you eat, it's all on God. It's all His. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from the Lord. I want to say this to you. Uh, I loved it when the Lord showed me this. I was closing the sermon. I was finishing it up. God says to His children, Before I formed you in the womb, what? I knew you. I knew you. I love that, beloved. Before I formed my children in the womb, I knew them, God says. And I want to ask you, do you get that? Do you feel the weight and the import and the implication of that? I'm finished. Let me just say this. Beloved, your conception, your birth, your life, your times, your rebirth, your death, and the far side of eternity are in your Father's all-wise, all-loving, all-compassionate, almighty, ever-faithful, sovereign hands. That is the God of the Bible. And Jesus Christ is right. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And if you get this huge, this huge picture of the sovereign God in your heart, if you worship this God, you are free to obey the Lord with glad, reckless abandon. You don't have to worry about what men say. You don't have to worry about the consequences. Your sovereign Father has His omnipotent hand upon you. And He irresistibly causes all things to work together for good. Beloved, as I've said to you so many times, if God is indeed for us, what? Who can be against us? Beloved, you have been redeemed to be strong. And you have been redeemed to do exploits. You're not here to simply do a job, get a career, make money, accumulate wealth, enjoy yourself, entertain yourself. That's not why God redeemed you. Now, God gives you those secondary blessings, obviously, in your life. But God has redeemed you that you might know Him, that you might be strong, and that you might do exploits upon the earth. That is my challenge to you. I'm gonna, we're going to close. We're going to close with that song. Uh, that, that little hymn that we, we learn, Sovereign Ruler of the Skies. But I'm going to give you a minute. Uh, I want you to think about what the Lord has said to you tonight. I want, to think about, I want you to think about how you believe the Holy Spirit wants that to impact your life, affect your life, possibly even radically change your life, the way you think, the way you prosecute life, the way uh, you look at the Lord, the way you look at circumstance. I want to give you just a minute to think deeply about all you've heard tonight. One, to worship. Two, to confess sin if you need to. And three, to commit your ways to a sovereign God. 
So let's take a few minutes. Let's think about all that we've heard. And then uh, we will sing and we'll be, we'll be dismissed.